and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, here's a question for you. Yes. What's something... Okay. (laughs) What's something you wish you had been doing for the 90 minutes of your life that you gave to Tuesday night's debate? Uh, Giving myself a painful and thorough home pedicure. Home pedicure? Sure. I haven't been back to the salon. (laughs) Oh, man. Foot stuff immediately on the show today. Okay. Um, I was thinking that I really wanted to, like, rewatch some Disney animated classics because they're about, like, 90 minutes long. Yeah. Which one? Like, The Sword in the Stone. That's the best Disney movie. Okay. I mean, I think that we could take the whole episode and list things that would have been a better use of our time than the endless 90 minutes that was that and cacophony listening to the list would in turn be a better use of our listeners time than watching the debate was yeah. listening to us it's list true. things that were better than the debate oh my god okay well let's get to the show on this week's episode we are joined by representative Gwen Moore from Wisconsin we're joined by America Ferreira and Jalisa Arce to tackle the following questions was that a debate or the ninth circle of hell Was a Russian disinformation campaign targeting an actual congresswoman? And can Latina voters save America? All this and more right now. Okay, let's get started with a little bit of news. Um, I mentioned the debate on Tuesday, which everyone agrees was bad. Um, It was so bad, Alyssa, that New Zealand, um, a New Zealand news organization reported that searches for move to New Zealand spiked during the debate. Alyssa, what (laughs) (laughs) what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I would definitely love to live someplace where there are more sheep than people right now. I think we can all agree. Um, I mean, Erin, it was it was catastrophic. It was so bad. It's did you learn anything? No. Other than Trump has severe anger management issues, potentially roid rage, which is what it felt like. Yeah. I've it was and yeah. It was like, have you ever had an altercation with someone that you had no role whatsoever? in like escalating and do you mean do you mean when someone acts hysterical yes exactly but I mean okay here's an example one time I was at a bar in Chicago and this girl turned around and bumped into me and I said oh my gosh I'm so sorry excuse me and she like immediately wanted to get into a fight and I was like I what can I say to not get in a fight with you It, it just was like this interaction that seemed totally divorced from like any real emotional like reality. Yeah. Uh, It was horrible. Like watching it was a stressful experience. Because one, you all of a sudden, the first time I looked at my uh, phone at the, at the time, I was like, God, it's been forever. And it was 914. (laughs) Yeah. I looked at, and you 18 minutes in, and I was like, oh my and, God. And it's like our civic duty. We have to watch it. We have to say what we thought about it. But I mean, it's, it's look, when even one of the most racist sons of bitches, Rick Santorum, had to backpedal after it was over and be like, well, I don't know, maybe he came in a little too hot. <laughs> That's, that seems to be the talking point for everybody. Chris Christie was also talking about how Trump needed to come in strong, which he did, but he might have come in a little too hot. Oh, could you? 
Could you imagine my favorite my favorite tweet last night, though, I think was one of yours, of course. Oh, thanks. And it was like that Trump was acting the way misogynists say women act when they have their period. He was. He was acting he was. like that. That's the thing. Like he confesses by accusing. And I think that a lot of sexists who accuse women of being overly emotional are themselves too emotional to lead. It was really like distressing to watch. It was stressful because Joe Biden was trying to keep his cool and have a regular debate, which he he kept his cool mostly, but it was just like, I hate this. There's so many times that I was like, I hate this. And I think the first time that I was like, fuck this debate was when, well, first when it started, but also when President Trump said that Amy Coney Barrett didn't have a judicial record on abortion and or on Roe v. Wade and the Affordable Care Act. And he tried to kind of like gaslight the audience into believing that Amy Coney Barrett doesn't believe what she actually believes. I was like, okay, fuck this. Here, couple, couple of my observations. One, Joe Biden, God bless. Um, he is definitely someone who's better at going high than going low. Like I really felt there were moments yesterday when Hillary would have thrived, (laughs) you know? And it's like, you could tell too that like Biden knew he had to be prepared to be aggressive. Right. And so then when he landed a couple of his one-liners, he almost like chuckled to himself. Like (laughs) I did it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like, I mean, he can, he can like be, he can he can land a zinger, but he's not a mean man. You know, there's nothing about him that feels no. mean to me. Um, no. And I, I hope that next week, I feel like Kamala will be very good at being mean. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I was watching Kamala, I think, in uh, coverage of After the Debate. I think I was watching her talk to Brian Williams. And I was just like, oh, oh me too. Thank goodness for this woman. I cannot wait to see her on stage. I cannot wait to hear her debate Mike Pence because I think, you know, for better or for worse, Mike Pence has some manners and he wouldn't just come on there barging around like a, you know, a bull in a China shop, not letting anybody complete any sentences. So I'm really excited. You know what I was going to say too, is that one of the things about Biden, you know, Trump keeps being like 47 years you've been here. The one thing I think that Biden struggles with a little bit is that he still kind of believes it's all on the level. You know, like Mm -hmm. he talks about like one of his favorite things to talk about in stump speeches is how he can work with Republicans. And, you know, you go back 20 years and you see that that's true. He did work with Republicans across the aisle and he's like slowly coming to terms with the fact that Mitch McConnell's like a terrible dick face. (laughs) But, you know, like in the debate, he's still like, he's waited his whole life to debate a president, like being the presidential debate to have made it this far. And it's like the world is robbing him of his moment (laughs) to have like a dignified moment because it wasn't his, it's in no way his fault, but like there was nothing dignified about last night. And like, Everybody lost last night. <laughs> it was horrible. We lost 90 minutes of our lives that we will not get back. You know, it kind of reminded you talking about Biden, like really wanting to have this moment to debate, you know, in, in a presidential debate. Sort of reminds me of like, you know, when you go to the airport and there are dogs that are like trying to sniff for explosives. Sometimes you have to walk down this like hallway area and there's like a dog walking up and down. Um, every once in a while you see the officers stop with their dog and play ball with them Mm -hmm. because the dogs like are trained to sniff out, you know, they, they think their job is to find stuff and then they get to play ball. And if they go a really long time without finding things and they don't get to play ball, they kind of like don't care about it anymore. I feel like somebody should have take, taken Biden outside after that and just like played ball with him for a bit. (laughs) Just like totally agree. Give him a shot. 
Um, let's move on to talking about Amy Coney Barrett. Um, on Sunday, President Trump strung together enough complete sentences to nominate Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. She has been a judge uh, on the Seventh Circuit for a whopping three years, um, and she was nominated by President Trump in 2017. Before that, she was a law professor at uh, Notre Dame, my alma mater, although I didn't go to law school there because it is conservative law school, and I don't want to go to law school. Um, Early in her legal career, she clerked for Justice Scalia. Her nomination took place in the Rose Garden and was deliberately modeled to resemble the ceremony where Bill Clinton nominated Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Senate Republicans plan to start her confirmation hearings October 12th. Alyssa, she's got three names. She's a woman. What else does she have in common with Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Not one thing. Not one thing. And they need to stop. The ads on television are so appalling. Like, I guess... Maybe if she's so awesome, she should just try to win on her own, get confirmed on her own, and stop trying to be like. Can you just imagine she's trying to be? What she also going to try to be like Michelle Obama? I mean, like, what is she thinking? She has as much in common with Michelle Obama as she does RBG. Mm-hmm. I think she has more in common with Antonin Scalia than she does with any woman mm-hmm. who's ever been on the Supreme Court, including Sandra Day O'Connor, who was appointed by Ronald Reagan. Um, I, you know, the thing about this whole thing. I I actually have a friend who uh, went to Notre Dame for law school and she had her as a professor. I know a few people who knew her as a professor. She is. What were the reviews? She's by all accounts, like a great professor Mm -hmm. and a really nice lady. But the thing that I think is super frustrating is like, we're not, the Senate is not voting to confirm a nice lady as much as Republicans want to tell us that that's what they're doing. What they're doing is voting to confirm somebody who will judicially do the thing that they couldn't accomplish legislatively, which is overturn the Affordable Care Act, which is uh, undo Roe v. Wade. She's not a nice lady. She is the things that she is going to do as a judge. And those are not nice lady things. We don't need it. Not for us. Not not our kind of nice lady. Not for us. Um, in, in some of her legal writing, she supported felons being allowed to have guns, but not to vote. Isn't that something? That's I wrote that down too when I was crazy. taking notes. See, I had to read it a few Zoinks, times. Scoop. I, was, I was like, what? How? Wait, what? You know what I can't wait for? I can't wait till she has some opinion on whether Michael Bloomberg paying the debts of uh, formerly incarcerated people in Florida so they can vote is a crime, which is what Donald Trump says it is. I hope somebody asks her that because it's not Donald Donald Trump. Michael Bloomberg doesn't do crimes, especially out in public. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's real rich people are smart enough to make their crimes private, I think. It's like succession style. It's reasonable. Exactly. Right? Like have a little class, you know, act like you know how to crime secretly. Um, You know, I think you and I are talking about this in a way that's very breezy just because we're emerging from the other side of the nightmare that was the debate last night on Tuesday. Um, But I think that like we would be in remiss if we didn't talk. This is like an emotionally heavy and insulting nomination. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is an anti-feminist. It's, it, she is a person that is specifically being chosen to be the woman, you know, like Dahlia Lithwick wrote this week at Slate, she was the woman chosen to be the vessel for like shutting things down for other women. Um, and that sucks. Being, this is, this is the thing that is the most obnoxious, pathetic, 
what have you, is the GOPs, it is as if they think we are so stupid that somehow, because they picked a woman, if women don't like the woman, we're not feminist. As if like being a feminist isn't about having like free thought and supporting women who actually care about the liberties and rights of other women, which is usually expanding, not contracting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think if somebody, you know, if you're, if you were climbing a ladder and somebody reaches down and, and pulls you up, you don't turn around and kick the people behind you on the ladder. That's no, that is uh, totally fucked up. Um, I also think like, God, you know, this week has been deeply irritating for a number of reasons, but one of them has been all of this writing, and and Alyssa, you alluded to it, writing and talking about, like, conservative feminism. Do you think there is such thing as conservative feminism? Alyssa's giving a a middle finger. I'm giving the finger because I'm mature, but still more (laughs) mature than Donald Trump last night. Um, Do I, I mean, sure, but I think that it's more like, you know, we've talked about her before. I am more interested in the musings of someone like Essie Cup talking about conservative feminism than I am this, um, what would I call it, Erin? I call it like a, a Halloween mask mm-hmm. that they're putting on feminism to be like, it's about women, so it's feminism. And, uh, and it's not. And I think that there are versions I'm not super acquainted with them, but there are there are arguments that there are versions of conservative feminism, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this isn't that. You're, I think, a little bit more charitable than I am because when I hear tell the, me when I hear the phrase conservative feminism, I'm like that is not that's not what fem- feminism is about. Progress and conservatism is you know supposedly about slowing that progress. And so those two things don't really work together. I do think it's possible for somebody to be, and uh, I'm, I do this with the most like sarcastic of air quotes, like fiscally conservative and a feminist, uh-huh. as long uh-huh. as your like fiscal conservatism isn't about like culture war type stuff. Right. You know, like if you think that lower, t- if you like Milton Friedman as an economist or whatever, like I think you can be a feminist, but I just... Oh, man. I mean, she's probably going to get seated, right? Like, is there anything that the Democrats can do or are doing? So look, math is math, right? If uh, I think that there is uh, now that it's so funny, it's like now that Susan, Susan Collins and I think Lisa Murkowski were the only two Republicans to come out and say, to be clear, Not that they wouldn't vote for her, but that they shouldn't take this up before the election. Lot of like very specific verb usage (laughs) in all of these statements. And so right now it looks like McConnell has the votes. You and I were talking last week when we spoke to Maisie Hirono, like what kind of fuckery can Chuck Schumer do to at least make this hard, right? And Maisie was a little cagey, but it turns out that they had a plan. And so yesterday, in a very rare move for a minority leader, Chuck Schumer filed a motion to proceed on a bill titled, wait for it, a bill to protect the health care of hundreds of millions of people in the United States and prevent efforts of the Department of Justice to advocate <laughs> to strike down the patient protection 
and ACA. So the, the now, strategy is that the bill title is so long that it will take into the election until the election to read it and thus delaying. Pretty much. Now, the reason that this is very rarely done and fuckery, as we were hoping for, is because the Senate floor is a place of decorum where decorum is supposed to lead. And the Senate majority leader is always yielded to first. He's always, um, or they, they, not he, they, um, they control the floor. But yesterday, Mitch McConnell was out doing some courtesy call look-sees with our handmaiden in waiting. (laughs) And it turns out Chuck went to the floor and he did this. Um, Look, anything they can do to slow this down as much as they can is completely worthwhile. And it was a big deal for Chuck to do. And we want to give him some credit and some appreciation for trying to make this fucking difficult for Mitch. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have expected it from Chuck Schumer, um, because he always strikes me as somebody who's got too much faith in people to be nice and follow the rules. Um, but you know, no fucks Chuck. I'm, I'm into no fucks Chuck. No fucks Chuck. We hope that he carries this mantle through election day. Yeah. Fuckery Chuck. We can also go with. Senate. Fuckery Chuck. <laughs> Fuckery Chuck. Oh my God. You know, I barely got any sleep last night because I was so agitated from the same from the debate. So um, let's take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we've got a great interview with a congresswoman we've wanted on the show for a very long time. So sit tight for that. This week, we're so excited to welcome Representative Gwen Moore of Wisconsin's 4th Congressional District. Congresswoman Moore is a member of the House Progressive Caucus and is the second woman and first black woman elected to represent Wisconsin in Congress. So let me just say from one Wisconsin native to another, welcome to Congresswoman Moore. Hello. I am just so awesome. It's It's so awesome to be here and so happy to be with Hysteria. I'll have to tell you a story about that when I heard your uh, line. I was. I remember being in a date uh, in, in in a debate once with a fellow Democrat who uh, decided to call me hysterical. And boy, what I mean, that took us off the subject for thirty minutes. As I got <laughs> on, his yeah, talking about my uterus <laughs> and uh, uh, associating my well placed words. Uh, in criticisms uh, and to try to diminish what I was saying and talking about my womb. So I'm so happy to be uh, part of the hysterical group today. <laughs> Good. We we embrace it. We embrace it. Um, speaking of the debate, uh, we don't want to waste too much of our time rehashing whatever it was that happened on Tuesday night. Uh, Trump couldn't denounce racism and tried to sow doubt about our ability to have free and fair elections. I think we've all known for a while that Trump is actual trash. Um, But now, as of Thursday, we are 34 days out from the election and Wisconsin is a crucial state for Joe Biden to win. Wisconsin is also seeing a surge in COVID cases in the past month. Um, So, Congresswoman, are you concerned about how that will affect people's ability to vote? And have voters come to you with questions about safety? You know, I'm very concerned. I mean, as you know, Wisconsin in April was the scene of a a chaotic voting experience where Republicans insisted 
that people pay the ultimate poll tax, and that is to sacrifice their health and maybe even their lives to go and vote and went all the way to the state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court to force a vote uh, on a day when uh, COVID was raging in Wisconsin. And, and so it, it's a concern of all of ours. So from that, came the notion that we really need to uh, 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 really encourage folk in Wisconsin to do absentee voting so that we don't have the same debacle. But of course, we have seen the Republicans try everything in Wisconsin. I mean, they tried to get Kanye West on the ballot, Republican lawyers. They tried the, the good, our, some of times our very good friends in terms of our values, the Green Party, Republican lawyers were trying to help them get on the ballot. And of course, they garnered uh, 30,000 votes in 2016, uh, 8,000 more votes than we lost by. Um, and you know, just uh, even now, the Republicans are challenging uh, our ability to have our sports arenas uh, as polling sites, uh, saying that you, you can't have the mascots out encouraging people to vote, uh, even though there's nothing partisan about, you know, sausages running around the, uh, the, you know, the stadium. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, little messenger sausages. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, or, or cheese, but, but that being said, you know, it's hard to blame them ladies. I mean, they're doing everything they can to foil uh, a free and fair election. And, uh, we are stepping up because we know that they've pulled a lot of stuff out of the 2016 playbook. Uh, and we're not going to be fighting the last war, but we're going to look at that and then really try to anticipate the problems that we're going to have in 20 and 2020. Congresswoman, in another hurdle, uh, a recent investigation conducted by Channel 4 News in the UK found in 2016, Lord help us, the Trump campaign targeted 3.5 million black voters to deter them from voting. Does this worry you? Do you see this happening again in 2020? Just let me, I'm going to really thank you for that. And, you know, I really want to get an opportunity to feed and read the full report because I knew it was happening. Uh, I, I, I was getting these robocalls uh, constantly with a sounding voice on the other end uh, that said, <clears throat> you know, if you vote for Hillary Clinton, they said, it's not too late. I knew I hadn't voted early vote. It's not too late. You vote for Hillary Clinton, she's going to start World War III. Now, somebody knew something about me and knew that I was a peacenik or that that would be really upset and disturb me. You know, I didn't have a Facebook page of my own at that time, but uh, they, they were targeting particularly black men, you know, uh, regaling them with, uh, with stories of uh, false stories of Hillary, you know, a Hillary who, who didn't vote at all on the 94 crimes bill but somehow had that uh, hung around her neck, you know, and, you know, no amount of explaining to people, well, guess what? Bernie Sanders voted for the 1994 bill. Bobby Rush, former member of the Black Panther Party, voted for the 1994 bill. The, the Lion of Harlem, uh, Charlie Rangel voted for it, et cetera, et cetera. And it had good stuff in it. 
No, it had the Violence Against Women Act in it. Uh, it had the First Chance Act. And that's always the risk of these omnibus bills uh, because they're not perfect. They, they, they put a lot of people's bills in. And that is what's happening. She was the first lady commenting on how there were super predators. And let's let me say, so those were the days. Crack cocaine was so horrible. People were killing their grandmothers for, for money to get crack. And, you know, if she said it, it was the truth. But the, the only thing that I can think of is that back in the day, crack cocaine addiction was a crime versus now uh, with the white population, meth or opioids, uh, it is now a public health concern. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the racial dimension of it all. But they amplified that one comment that Hillary had made. She didn't even have a vote. She was somebody's wife, but she caught flack because of the Russians amplifying that message. And, and they're doing it this year already. I've already had, you know, like almost a violent argument with a black man already about did Biden really say that Barack Obama was clean? Yes, he did. He said that many years ago. What did, what did Trump say the other day about eliminating <laughs> a, a affirmative action training? I mean, why isn't that more important? Mm -hmm. so, and so they're doing it again. Mm -hmm. Well, that is uh, discouraging. Um, but now, especially with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, how do we keep people from being discouraged when it feels like Trump and the GOP are Teflon? Like things don't really affect their agenda and it doesn't seem like they're playing by any rules. So what should Democrats do to win a game where the other side is cheating? Like, do we play dirty? Well, Aaron, just let me say this. You know, I'm speaking from Wisconsin. And so I think people have to look at where their votes are, wherever they are. Now, in Wisconsin, um, we know from our own lived experience that the 18 to 29-year-old group is the crucial demographic that we have to get out. We have some of the youngest African-Americans in the country. And, and indeed, a Tufts University study did an analysis of, of the 18 to 29-year-old group across all 50 states and determined that Wisconsin was number one in the nation for that cohort having an impact on the outcome of the 2020 presidential campaign. You know, other mm. states, you, you know, could be a lot very helpful to us in terms of some surprises like Georgia, in terms of giving us those things, plus two senatorial seats. Uh, we could see a lot of action happening in South Carolina, seat in Lindsey Graham. In terms of the presidential, the 18 to 29 year old cohort that could have the most impact is going to be in Wisconsin. And nationwide, we saw 18 to 29 year old cohort uh, uh, undo uh, the election of 2016. So I say all that, getting around to answering your question, you know, people should have hope. Because no matter what happens, it's, it sort of looks like they're going to have their way with this uh, with this uh, justice pick. But and, and they'll go right after the Affordable Care Act on November 10th. What people need to know, especially this young group of people, is that in 2019, 
suddenly the baby boomers who have been in power, six of the last eight presidents have been boomers. Yes, Barack Obama was a boomer. Um, <laughs> but that 2019, boomers fell of being the majority of the population. And now the millennials and the Gen Zers who are eligible to vote, the you know, Generation X, they're in the majority. I mean, you know, I, I can tell you, my chief of staff, you know, you should hear him rip on boomers. According to him, boomers have caused every problem known to the United States. The big, huge debt getting into all these wars, destroying the environment. He can't think of anything that boomers are not responsible for. Well, 2020, this is the year that you're in charge. So all that stuff <laughs> that you want, justice in policing, you know, uh, uh, affordable health care, uh, LGBTQ rights, no matter what they do, because the Supreme Court is being uh, 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 the Supreme Court now is being configured to lock in a minority view in this country. I mean, the majority of people in this country don't want Roe v. Wade, for example, overturned. So they're going to lock in a minority view. But no matter what they do, if we show up, show out, vote, perhaps snatch that Senate while we're at we're dragging Trump out of the White House, we can fix whatever sort of a, a, a curse they bring on us with this uh, this majority, uh, uh, the Republican majority. After a debate that let down basically all of America last night, many people are feeling like the process is broken beyond repair. How do you inject hope into a cynic? Well, you know, uh, people have different religious backgrounds, but what I have discovered over the years that there's there's sort of a there there there's just a line that sort of goes through all of it, and a lot of it talks about hope. You know, because faith is the substance of things unseen, mm -hmm. uh, and people have to believe that their vote is going to give them the kind of leverage that they need. I mean, people believe that. 18 to 29 year old group, for example, average age of a marcher for George Floyd is 28 years old. I'm sure people like me brings the age up uh, uh, to, to 28, but they're out there marching for justice, you know, uh, for George Floyd here in Wisconsin, Jacob, Blake, Breonna Taylor, for God's sake, what were the police even doing at her apartment? Why did they even go? Um, but the, the best form of non Violent protests is voting. And I mean, just I just want people to think the, the efforts that they go through to stop you from voting. I mean, go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Wisconsin, because you've got a, a state Supreme Court just, uh, justice on the ballot. I mean, after all that's happened in Florida, you know, trying to disenfranchise felons, putting in onerous voter ID laws. Uh, uh, you know, just just bringing back the Jim Crow days when you had to guess how many uh, jelly beans in a jar, practically, or how many bubbles on a on a bar of soap to vote. Um, you know, you've got to ask yourself, why would they target you, twenty three year old mama with a baby, 
try to keep you from voting. I mean, who are you? You ain't nobody. But, but they're spending all these resources to keep you from voting because voting is a power thing. And, and right now, you know, the majority, they do not give a doggone about people's right to life or people's, uh, all this stuff that they put out there in front. No, the people who are funding this initiative, they care about going back to the good old days of when they could pollute the air and the water with impunity. Ain't no fine. So the Trump has already rolled back so many environmental protections. I've lost count of that. They want to go back to the good old days. You know, where nobody is screaming about a equality and Lily Ledbetter and all that. And, and they don't have to hear the screams and demands to raise the minimum wage. Uh, they don't want they, they want control so that like this last tax cut, even though we were trillions of dollars in debt, gave, they gave up what's going to turn out with inflation to be almost a three trillion dollar uh, uh, indebtedness and it went to 85 85 of the tax cut went to rich people and companies you know that just is is is, is this is voodoo economics people you know we and you know when you're talking to young people you know the example i love to come up with is uh you know right now the, the airlines are having a terrible time staying alive but years ago my sister was an 18-year-old flight attendant with TWA. She remembers the older flight attendants going in there and bargaining for health care, bargaining for pension benefits. And she thought that was crazy because all she wanted was money so that when she deadheaded in Paris or somewhere, she could go shop because she was 18, had never taken an aspirin or a Tylenol in her life. You know, fast forward, <laughs> This is what she misses most about the EWA being bought by a, a super predator, a Carl Icahn, and not having her pension and not having health care. This is what she misses the most, fast forward. So you won't always be 18, you know? And the reason that black and brown people are dying at higher rates from COVID-19 than other people, it's not because there's some black gene that makes us more susceptible to succumbing to it it's because of the, the, the just the cumulative impact of not having regular health care. You know, when we talk, talk about somebody like RBG, I mean, she fought cancer for all those years, not because they cured it, because they found it first, the early stage of it, versus what happens to people with no health insurance. You know, they crawl their way into the emergency room a week before they're going to die. And this is something that would change people's lives if they had early interventions. And this is one of, this is the reason we have to fight for universal health care, affordable health care. And that is the thing that is immediately at risk uh, with the Supreme Court nomination of uh, of Judge Barrett. Um, Congresswoman, this was so great. You have to come back. This was so much fun. Um, and uh, say hello to Wisconsin for me. And uh, Girl, you're you welcome home. You can always <laughs> come home. I know you sound like my mom. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, this was this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And uh, and thank have a great you. rest of your day. OK, thank you. Bye. Bye.
Okay, welcome back. We've gotten to the part of the show where it's more than just me and Alyssa bitching about the news. Um, <laughs> we will be bitching about the news, but there are more people involved now. So um, for, let me introduce the two awesome women that we have with us this week. First, she is a national best-selling author, a crooked contributor, and she has a new interview series, La Historia Uncovered, which uncovers the lesser-known Latinx history in America. You know her, you love her. It's Julissa Arce. Julissa, hi. Hello. Can you, so glad to be back. Oh my gosh, it's so good to see you. Every time I like see you through like social media, it's like, oh, when will the pandemic be over so we can hang out again? I know. Yes, <laughs> we need to go get some more tacos. I know, exactly. Um, can you tell us real quick before we move on. Um, can you tell us where people can tune into your series? Yeah. So people can find La Historia Uncovered uh, on my YouTube channel, on Facebook with our partners, We All Grow Latina, uh, Latino Rebels, She Se Puede, uh, and Vise. So we have a bunch of places where people can tune in and, and watch it. And, and I hope they will. Amazing. We'll put it in the show notes too, in case people want to dive in and find links to it. Um, and last but not least, finally, you know her from a little indie called Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, among her many other projects. She's an actress, an activist, and she just recently launched the aforementioned She Se Puede, a digital lifestyle community created for Latinx women. It's America Ferreira. Hi. Thanks for having me. so good to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing today? How's the core and the political (laughs) season treated you? (laughs) That's a, such a loaded question. How are we doing today? Oh, my God. Um, you know, <laughs> I, look, I think there is I, I'm, I have tunnel vision right now, which is just like do everything that we can possibly do in the remaining weeks before November 3rd to get as many people uh, participating and voting and getting their early voting ballots in. And that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm choosing to focus on. I think there's a lot to get buried in and buried under. But to be honest, I've been uh, appalled and terrified uh, pretty consistently for five years now. So (laughs) I feel like, (laughs) you know, the the daily breaking news, um, it really doesn't reveal very much new information. Um, uh, We are you know, our democracy is is on the brink. Uh, it's probably been on the brink for quite a time, but we're um, we're at a turning point and nothing feels more important than, than speaking the truth in this moment about what we're actually in and what lies on the other side of of this election. So that's, that's how I am. <laughs> it's an, it was an essay question yeah, yeah. so that you answering with an essay is perfectly acceptable. You know, it's, it's funny. I have a pretty high tolerance for bad news stories because I've worked in newsrooms and, and all that. And I have in the last weeks experienced more like nope outs than ever before. Do you ever have a day where you're, the news is just happening and happening and happening and a story comes up and you're just like, nope, Nope. Yep. I can't. I can't do this right now. I nope out like twice a week. But I think you're exactly right about staying engaged and keeping our eyes on the prize because it is close. It's like when people are hearing this, we can technically say the election is next month. Well, you know, I want to say like the election is actually right now. The election mm-hmm. is over on November 3rd, but the election is mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. now. And, and that's what people have to wrap their minds around. Like we are in this process and and there are going to be so many obstacles 
um, between now and then and even after election night that we just have to be so wide eyed about, um, you know, that this is not going to be a regular, <laughs> you know, election night. It'll probably be days and potentially weeks of um, of of uh, uh, an uncertainty about, you know, what the outcome is going to be and where we're going to end up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't even want to think anything positive or negative because all we all we know is like that we can control today. You know, I, I get so like nervous thinking about election day, but it's like, all we can do is what we're doing. What are we doing today? Um, so I think that's, that's an important, uh, mental health step that we can take. Um, America, we're going to get back into talking about politics and, uh, and getting the vote out. But first, can you tell us a little bit about She Se Puede and the impetus for launching the community and its goals. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. So She Se Puede is a new online platform and community for Latinas by Latinas. It was founded by uh, a group of Latinas from varying backgrounds from Obviously, Eva Longoria and I are in the entertainment industry. We have activists and organizers like Carmen Perez and Monica Ramirez and Jess Morales Riquetto. Um, we have uh, women from business backgrounds and research and polling backgrounds and really just this amazing cohort of founders who who were inspired mostly by the urge to build long-lasting power in the Latino community. Um, we want to see Latinos and Latinas specifically showing up in every space with the power that actually belongs to them, which is to say a lot. You know, I, of course, everything goes back to the election for me, but like when we look at any given field or industry, the, 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 the power that lies in the Latino community and the Latina community specifically, because Latinas are the CEOs of their households. They are small business owners. They run things. They they say where all of that tr- trillions of dollars of consumer uh, power goes in their households. Um, uh, we, we need Latinas to actually hear and believe the truth of how powerful they are in this country. And we have a, a massive gap in our culture that, you know, at best we're invisible and at worst we are fed very negative stereotypes of who we are and what we're capable of and, and what our place in this society is. And so, so She Se Puede um, was founded as a, as a cultural revolution for Latinas to, to be celebrated, to be affirmed, to be inspired and to be informed about, about all of the things that matter to us, everything from, you know, working out to, to, uh, you know, our workplace, everything from building our resumes to learning our history, like Julissa's amazing series that dives deeper into, you know, just us exploring our identity in ways that current culture doesn't really make space and room for. So we're building a community where we get to tell our stories and we get to see ourselves and we get to lift each other up and live in our power. And that is not going to happen in an election cycle. It's not going to happen in four years and maybe not even 10 years. This is a generations long culture shift that we are embarking on and we're so excited about it. And and the truth is, is that Latinas are already powerful. We're out there succeeding and killing it in every 
every realm in, in entertainment, in, in politics, in science, in technology, in medicine, um, in journalism. Um, and, and we need that story told. We need the truth of our, our impact and the contributions that we make to this culture to be seen so that millions of other Latinas growing up have the examples and the role models for what is possible for them. The way that Julissa and I grew up with basically none of those role models. So we're, 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 uh, we're creating it and we're really excited about it. That's awesome. Julissa, do you have anything to add about the importance of a space like She Se Puede? I mean, I just wanted to like clap the whole entire time that America was talking because I was like, I was like I yes, girlfriend. What is this? <laughs> talk, talk about it. Um, well, you know, I don't know who's a member of the Academy or television arts or whatever, but definitely vote for America for anything she does. Um, she has my vote. Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you know, I was super excited about the launch of, uh, of She Se Puede. I am a friend of, uh, of She Se Puede and, uh, know a lot of the women that were behind it and knew that it was going to be powerful and have just been so delighted with the, the early stages of it. I mean, it just launched within the last month, I think, and already the powerful conversations that are happening. And to me, one of the things that has been most important is the support that She Se Puede is giving the entire community, right? So it's not just like about She Se Puede, but it's about having a spotlight on other lifestyle brands and other Latina creators and content creators and, you know, the support that I've received even personally for La Historia Uncovered has been amazing. And so I think that that's, I'm just really happy to see like how we're building community, which is like bringing everybody along with us, not just like, you know, me, I'm going to do this thing and then and then forget that there's a whole community, but like truly building the community and bringing people along um, the process. And that's been just really amazing to see. I'm so excited about it. I've, I've been excited about it. And, and every time I hear America talk about it, I get even more and more <laughs> excited. <laughs> I have to say one of your co-founders, Stephanie Valencia, is one of my longtime colleagues in the White House, and she is just one of the smartest people I know. So it was very exciting to see her be a part of this. She is one of the smartest um, people, and she's such a badass. I mean, as you just said, she she worked in the Obama administration. She worked for Google. She was doing such incredible work uh, in her field. And a couple years ago, she made the decision to found a research lab to, mm-hmm. to research the Latino electorate because nobody else is doing it and truly nobody else knows yep. how to do it and and it was largely her findings that were based on facts and data that guide us on a day-to-day basis and guided us to the the truth and the reality that while latinas are motivated to vote and to participate there are gaps and and one of those biggest gaps is a confidence gap in our community and so that's not political that's cultural Confidence right. is cultural. Mm-hmm. Empowerment is cultural. And so anyway, uh, Stephanie is a badass. We love her. We're so lucky to have her on our team. And and she's just like, she's our secret weapon. Well, now I'm going to make sure she listens to this <laughs> since it was a Stephanie love fest. America, you've been working in the entertainment industry for years from the Disney Channel original movie, Gotta Kick It Up, which we have to mention because it is our producer Caroline's favorite show, um, to real women have curves to the sisterhood of the traveling pants, which I've seen 500 times. And we tried to have traveling pants and it didn't work for me and my friends. Um, and you're now starring in the NBC sitcom Superstore, amongst so many other projects. 
how have you seen the industry change or not change in the depiction of Latinx stories? Well, I think that there's been a lot of uh, new, fresh, exciting content um, relative to what there used to be. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I think overall we're still grossly underrepresented. You know, the uh, Annenberg released their report on Latinx representation in film and television, and it's it's truly appalling. Like, it hurts. Like, I don't know how you felt when you read mm-hmm. that report, Jaleesa, but when I read it, like, I cried because yep. we're invisible. And when we are there, we're depicted as criminals, our entertainment industry, our, which is an industry of imagination, which is an industry of, of possibility, which is meant to be, you know, one of the more inclusive uh, sectors of our society is largely telling stories that perpetuate the worst political narratives about our community. And, the, and we have the facts, we have the data to prove it. And so we have a, a lot of work to do. I think what excites me is the number of amazing Latinx creatives who are beginning to break through and and create more opportunity for others. Um, we have our Gloria Calderon Kellett, who you know rose out of Shondaland and um, and show ran uh, one day at a time. She created a room that was largely Latinx creatives. Tanya Saracho, who did Vida. We have Hentified. And what's happening, and that's so exciting to me, is that it feels like this generation of Latinx creatives in this industry understand that none of us can do it alone. And that for one of us to make it, one of us to succeed is not the point. The point is to knock down the door and bring in so many others behind you. And and it's happening. You know, these these writers' rooms are opening up and people are staffing them full of, of Latinx writers. You know, or I'm thinking of my friend Sierra Ornelas, who was a writer on Superstore, um, who is now running her own show, and she's half Mexican, half Native American, and she has a full right Native American writing staff. That is unprecedented. So, so wow. not That's just awesome. in the Latinx community, but in the n- Indigenous community, in you know all kinds of groups. Th- there's this new, I think, feeling from within that our stories. It's not just enough to get someone to green light you. You know, we we are taking mm-hmm. on the responsibility for creating space for more because that's the only way things are really going to change. So so I'm excited by what's possible, but we have a really long way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that I, you know, as a as a woman would like if I watch old shows that are like more than 20 years old where like, you know, the writer's room is all men. Like there will be moments on the show where I'm like, oh, these people don't really know about what they're trying to depict on screen. And I'd imagine as somebody that is a member of a group that is very underrepresented, but still like up until now, stories were being told in a way that kind of sucked. I would imagine it would be super frustrating to just see people trying to tell your stories and be like, no, this isn't this isn't like accurate. This doesn't come from a place of like true experience. Uh, well, it's not, it's not even like, it's not even just that, like our stories aren't told, like our specific stories, but that we don't exist in like other people's mm-hmm. stories. So what I mean by that is like, you know, I see like once upon a time in Hollywood and, you know, I live in Los <laughs> Angeles 
And I'm like, I mean, there are Mexicans, there are Latinos everywhere here, everywhere. So how do you tell a story that takes place in Los Angeles, California? And there is like one Latino who is parking your car. Right? So it's not even like, you know, I think that there is a part of like, yes, like I want our stories to be told and I want us to be the main character in the story, right? I want us to be the lead actor in the story. I want a whole story to be told that just centers our experience in that story. I want that to happen. And I also want us to be part of everyday life in other people's stories because we exist in everyday life. We are a part of the fabric of America. So it's not like, you know, just have this one little Latinx show over here and this other Latinx show over there. It's like, no, also include us in the world of stories that you are telling because we exist in this world. Mm hmm. Yeah. That's such a good, that's such a good point. Expanding from like visibility in entertainment to visibility at the polls. Um, let's get into talking about the election. Like it is, it is coming up and it looks like Latinx voters are going to be, you know, they're, they're important every single election, but mm-hmm. this one is going to be huge. Um, so Julissa in America, um, either of you can jump in, like, can you speak to the significance of the Latinx vote in this election and what the difference could be um, for uh, the, the Biden-Trump race. Julissa, would you like to so start? So there are 30... 30- <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'll start. <laughs> There's a lot to say. Uh, I have a whole notebook full of notes about this. Um, <laughs> That's so on brand. <laughs> you having a notebook of notes. I think every time you've been on this show, you've come like, I always have armed a, with a notebook with like really smart that stuff is, in it. <laughs> that is true. Be um, proud. Like we all do. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but there, there are 32 million eligible Latino voters this election. And every year, a million Latinos turn 18. So every year we are adding a million new voters, right? At least. And it's crazy to me how, given that we are today the second largest voting bloc, how little investment there is in our community, how it's only every four years that anybody pays any attention to us. And in between those four years, it's like we don't exist. And so that's never going to motivate people to go out and vote. When, um, you know, when I think about Texas, like Texas, Texas is not a red state. Texas is a non-voting state. Like less than 50% of people in Texas vote. 30%, yeah, 30% of the electorate in Texas is Latino. 30%. But tell me how many, well, you know, right now we're in COVID, but before that, how many field offices did presidential candidates set up in predominantly Latino neighborhoods, right? Not many. In California, also 30% of the electorate. And only Bernie Sanders had, you know, to his credit, had built a really amazing on the ground uh, operation that was where Latinos are. And so Latinos are always really important to every election. I mean, you say this election is the most important one, and it is, particularly for our community, because we have been demonized every step of the way. I mean, this president launched his campaign uh, with with his with his foot on our neck, and um, and it's insane how little investment gets made in our, in our community. And so, you know, like everything else, we are the ones that have to do it for ourselves. 
And I think that's part of what She Se Puede is doing, right? And that's what that's what all of us have to do. It's like, okay, you know what? There aren't books about people like us. Let's go write them. There aren't shows about people like us. Let's go make them. There aren't uh, polls about people like us. Let's go have, you know, create a whole polling agency that focuses on us. And so it's so it's it, the Latino vote is really important, but we have to make concerted investments. We have to spend as much money, time and capital uh, as we do courting the, the white rural voter. Right. Like we, there needs to be the same number of dollars that are spent in Ohio as there are like in Texas. And, and, and we've got to well, I'll pass it on to America, but we've got to, you know, we've got to think bigger than just Latinos in Florida. Uh, because Latinos in Florida are only 20% of the electorate and uh, Cubans are now not the majority of Florida Latino voters. No, in in Florida, 40% of Latino voters in Florida are non-Cuban and non-Puerto Rican. So people who think that Florida is just Cuban and the new influx of Puerto Ricans, that's certainly true. But 40% of Latino voters in Florida are neither of those. Um, And to your point, Julissa, the path to 270 electoral votes runs through Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, all states in which Latinos are the margin of victory. And sorry, let me amend that. Latinas, female Latina voters can be the margin of defeat or the margin of victory in Michigan, in Wisconsin, which is not where people like to think about where the Latino vote matters. And and like Julissa was saying, like my own experience is that since 2000 and I don't know what, 2005, two months before an election, my phone starts ringing off the hook. Help us get out the Latino vote. Help us get out the Latino vote. As if like ugly Betty showing up at your mall is going to make you excited about the democratic process. Like, yeah, maybe people will show up for a picture, but it's insulting. It's insulting to our community to think that we're going to show up in droves and then blame us when candidates, when both parties, when an entire process where billions are poured in to campaigns, when we are an afterthought in every single one of those calculations, and then and then the blame is placed on the Latino community for not showing up, when the truth is the Latino community is no different than any other community, white, black, Asian, indifferent. Voters engage when they are engaged with when candidates and the process care about you and show up, the number one indicator for whether or not someone is registered is how many times someone has been asked to register. No one asks our community to get engaged and to be involved. And so this thing of, you know, of course there's personal responsibility within the community and we need to show up. There's a real lack of investment, as Jaleesa said, a real lack of engagement, which really just translates into not caring. And and why that is devastating for our community is that none of all of the people who do not think it is important to engage the Latino community till two months before an election are not afraid of us. And that's a problem because when you're not afraid of us, you cage our children, you deport our mothers and our fathers, you call us any names you want and allow hate crimes against our community to rise and rise and rise. And so the lack of threat that candidates and people in positions of power feel for not engaging our community is truly, truly detrimental to to us. And as Julissa said, you know, 32 million eligible Latino American voters, if 32 million Americans don't have access to the polls, 
That is not a Latino issue. That is an American issue. That is a democracy issue. Our democracy cannot be whole and healthy if 32 million eligible voters are a footnote to every party, every candidate, every election. That has to change. And and yes, we obviously are doing what we can within our community uh, to build power that is meaningful and can turn out our community. But we can't do it without the rest of Americans opening their eyes to why it should matter to them that Latinos can access democracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as you as you mentioned or you um, kind of implied earlier, uh, the Latino community is is very diverse. Like it's definitely not a monolith. And, you know, there's a lot of different people coming from different places. What do you think is an effective way for politicians to reach Latino voters versus an ineffective and pandering way? You kind of mentioned the sort of like wait until the last minute and like kind of ham fisted. But like, what are some ways that politicians should steer the way that they reach out to you guys? I mean, first of all, they could just acknowledge our existence. I mean, when you think about the primary debates for the Democratic nominee, I mean, we were sitting there begging for one of them to mention the Latino community. And never mind immigration. What about the impact of COVID on the Latino community? What about the fact that we're 18% of the population, but we're 34% of essential workers? We're keeping food in every American's home. Like, why aren't they talking about our community when they talk about access to healthcare and access to jobs? It's not like Latinos are like, please talk about rice and beans and make us feel seen. It's like, we're saying acknowledge our existence, acknowledge the brunt of so many of these issues that fall on our community's shoulders and do it meaningfully, do it authentically, do it the way that you talk about the economy. Why should talking to Latinos be separate from the way you talk about how the economy impacts everybody else? Just acknowledge that we're here and acknowledge that we are a massive part and and also people who carry the brunt of so many of the issues that impact all Americans. Mm-hmm. Are yep. there any candidates That's... that, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, are there any candidates that you guys feel are doing a particularly good job at reaching out that other people could maybe like take a look at their playbook and and be better? Well, I think, you know, I, and, and in all transparency, like I did not vote for Bernie in the primary. Um, so everything I'm going to say now uh, next is not because I'm like, you know, because I was like a Bernie supporter. What I did support, though, was the way he ran his campaign. I mean, he really, truly invested in the Latino community. And that's a lot, you know, thanks to Chuck Rocha, who was a huge part of that. And, you know, as he says, I'm giving some shout out here. He wrote this book, Tio Bernie, where he talks about what they did during the campaign, how they engaged Latino voters and how, like I said earlier, they were where Latinos are. They opened Mm -hmm. many field offices that uh, communities like Bakersfield, California, large Latino community, for the very first time, there was a, a presidential campaign field office in that area. For the first time, it's 2020, right? And for the first time that happened. And so, and so there has to be a true investment that doesn't just come every four years, but that is, but that 
there's a permanent presence there. There's a permanent engagement uh, with the Latino community. And so there are people who are who are doing it correctly. Um, you know, to America's point about Latinos having a stake in every part of the conversation, you know, immigration is a is is a passion, uh, it's a passion issue. It's something that deeply affects our community, but it's not the only issue in the Latino community. It's a really, really important one. But you know, healthcare is a big issue. One in four children in public schools around the country is Latino. And so education and, and the way that we are failing children is a really important issue for the Latino community. And it's truly, it's all the reasons, America, it's all the reasons people immigrate to this country, right? It's not like, you know, it's like immigration is the, is, is, you know, this umbrella issue. But the, if we're talking about why people immigrate to this country, and what the promise of this country is, it's for all of these things. It's for mm-hmm. economics and access to healthcare and access to opportunity. So it's naturally all of these issues are are implied when you're talking about a community so impacted yeah. by immigration. Yeah. Yeah. And America has to like America, the country uh, <laughs> has, to, <laughs> has to realize has to realize that the success of this country truly is tied to the success of the Latino community. If the Latino community does not succeed, uh, if our children are not learning in school, uh, America is not going to continue to be a successful country when a quarter of its citizens are uh, uneducated and underpaid. Mm hmm. Um, let's pivot really quickly. I, I feel like we could have this conversation for like hours and hours, but let's pivot really quickly to the gender gap when it comes to voting. Um, like across all demographics, men are more likely to support President Trump than women. So what's the fucking deal? Like, why Why is that? Like, what do you guys make of the gender gap within the Latinx community? And um, how do... Like, can can Latinos win this on their own or do they need to try to convince some Latino men to come over and join them? Latino women on their own can be deciders in elections. Um, But you're absolutely right. There is a gender gap with how Latinx voters vote. And, you know, I actually don't think that it's different for Latino men than it is for, say, Black men or white men. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a clearly a, tox- a culture of toxic machismo across demographics that Trump is speaking to. And he knows, I mean, he's he knows that's what it is. And, it, you know, I don't know that there's much else to say other than a sense of entitlement, a sense of feeling like there's a, a status as a man in this country, in this world, that many young men really relate to the fear of losing, losing mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. uh, status and losing the ability, what, whatever else they're struggling with in their lives, there's, at least they have that, right? And if, mm-hmm. and if that can be protected, then they're better off at least than 51% of the population. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, it's, it's an issue in our community and it's an issue across demographics, as you say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's just also like, you know, like, yes, we need Latino men and women to vote for, to vote against Trump, but also, you know, white people need to get their shit together uh, because, you know, across every 
age group, across every educational level, white people voted for Trump. And so, yes, it's on us, the Latino community, to talk to our people. But like, you know, white people got to talk to their people. <laughs> it can't be all on us. Yeah, at the annual, I'm I'm dreading this year's annual meeting of the whites because it's going to be very the awkward. Whites, the whites are awful. <laughs> ugh. Fucking Karen. Just, ugh, the, the Karen convention. Um, Guys, this was a great conversation. Do either of you have any closing thoughts or anything you'd like to add before we have to take a break? Well, I was just thinking as, as you know, as we were talking about what role do candidates have in, in, in uh, you know, engaging and, and investing in the Latino community? You know, I think that responsibility belongs to everybody across all industries. You know, I think it belongs to journalists to not just tell the story when we're, you know, in front mm-hmm. of an election, like care about these issues year round. Interview Latinos contributing in big ways all year round, every year. You know, tell these stories to to people in positions of power across healthcare, across the legal world, across, you know, technology and entertainment. You know, this is not politics on its own is not the reason we're in the state that we're in. We all have played a part in the culture that we are breathing and the narratives that are being told politically are supported by everything else. And so all of us and all of our different jobs, careers, industries need to be thinking about the role that we're playing in this current state of things and how we are at the kind of very least, (laughs) or I guess at the least harmful, you know, ignoring the responsibility to change the very harmful and life-threatening, to be honest, narratives that are pushed on our community. So we all have a role to play. Julissa, anything to add? Yes. <laughs> I concur. Oh, <laughs> like you said, like I feel like if I start talking, I want to be talking for the next like 10 yeah. minutes because it's um, – you know, I think you can tell, like, we, we care about these issues uh, very deeply. And um, and all, all there really is to add is that uh, America needs to care about Latinos as much as Latinos care about Latinos. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great final thought. Um, America Ferreira, thank you so much for joining us. Julissa, stick around. Alyssa, stick around. And all of you stick around. We're going to take a break. But when we come back, I feel petty. And welcome back. Julissa is still with us. Alyssa is still with us. And you are still with us. We are going to do I Feel Petty. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. As of Saturday, guys, we will be one month out from Election Day. Uh, Alyssa, can you believe that? Can't come soon enough. Holy shit. It's happening. If you haven't yet, now's the time to get involved. Make some calls. Get voters registered before their deadlines. Our Adopt-A-State program is running a big weekend of action. You can find out more volunteer opportunities on votesaveamerica.com. We're also still accepting submissions for our pet issue project where you record a voice memo and uh, about an issue that you think is really important in the election. That's your pet issue. Um, but that 
you don't think it's enough play. So record it as a voice memo, send it to us at hysteria at crooked.com. And we're going through and listening to them and we're going to pick a few and uh, kind of bring, shed some light on some issues that our listeners find important. Also, you have a reminder, Alyssa, for all the good listeners. I do. A couple weeks ago, we were so lucky to have on Ayanna Presley, who reminded us that one of the most important things we could do is to fill out our census. Well, this is a reminder that the census deadline is October 5th. So if you haven't done so, fill out your census. It's really easy. It takes like two seconds. It took like like 10 minutes, but yeah. <laughs> like, okay, fine. I, I have a bad, <laughs> bad perception of time. Um, <laughs> okay, let's get to I Feel Petty. Okay, our house has been kept. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's get to I feel petty. Alyssa, do you want to start? Yes. Okay. Because I feel petty about squirrels. Let me tell you why. Okay. So here in upstate New York, during COVID, especially when we were like in full lockdown, people were not driving. What does that mean? It means that animals were not getting hit on the road. That's terrible. And so now there's like an overpopulation of every single species up here. You know I'm an animal lover, so I try to like help them across the street. I'm like, you can do it. I'm going to slow down and give you time. Squirrels, I have literally had to stop the car and be like, help me help you. What are you doing? I've tooted. I don't beep at them. I go toot toot with my little Subaru horn. And anyway, I'm just very upset about it because most people are not as cautious as I am. But squirrels, it's like you're begging to be murdered. And so anyway, squirrels, heads up. Be alert. <laughs> I think the squirrels that listen might have their mind changed when they tune in this week. They're going to be like, you know what? I I'm was. just trying to save squirrel lives. Just get the nut and run. <laughs> I was being real oblivious, but I'm going to pay attention to cars from now on. I'm a squirrel. Um, okay, I'll do what I'm feeling petty about this week. Uh, it's an, also an animal one. We didn't Ooh. coordinate this. but No, we um, didn't. Swans are terrible. What? Swans are <laughs> terrible. They're really pretty, like from far away. My my parents live near this like lake where no motorized vehicles are allowed on and it's like on a nature preserve. And there's like swans that live there and they're, they're babies and stuff. And they're really cool. When I was like back home this summer, I'd go out kayaking and see the swan family swimming across the lake. That was cool. Being anywhere closer than that to swans sucks. They poop everywhere. They're very Mm -hmm. mean. They're not actually that, like, they're really, I mean, they're beautiful on the water, but they're very ungraceful. Like, I was thinking about um, Swan Lake, the uh, ballet, because I was thinking about um, Black Swan, the movie. And uh, whoever wrote, that, like, came up with the idea to be like, you know what is beautiful and graceful? A swan clearly had never spent any time around swans. Swans are very mean, weird animals, and they're best enjoyed from a long distance away. And that is what I feel petty about this week. The end. Elisa, bring bring us home with something, really. Uh, So originally I was going to talk about feeling petty. And this this is just truly petty, which is I felt very petty about people coming on my Instagram simply to comment how much they hate my content. And I'm like, well, then why are you here? Leave. <laughs> like, You don't have to be here. But then the whole census reminder reminded me of something else I've been feeling very petty about, which is, you know how the census asks you about your ethnicity? Like, are you Latino? Yes, no. And then it asks you about your race. And, you know, as a Latina, I feel very passionately 
that I have to check other, like an other, like I'm literally labeling myself an other because I don't exist in the race categories because I don't fit any of the other boxes. People should absolutely fill out the census. And my biggest plea to Latinos is to not check the white box because (laughs) most of you are not white. Um, so, you know, check all the other boxes. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my advice. You know, that's not um, actually yep. that petty. That's, I think, I would say no, that that's pretty a, fucking reasonable. That's an important and reasonable thing to believe. Um, I support you. <laughs> I Thank support you. you too. And I uh, bet there are some squirrels that support you. But, <laughs> there you but go. not swans because they're, they're dick. not dicks. swans. Um, Julissa, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank um, you. Thanks to America Ferrera. Thanks to Alyssa, my ride or die. Thanks to Representative Gwen Moore. And thanks to you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria for you next week. I am from Hysteria is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our editor is Sarah Barrett, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to Brian Semmel and Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. Oh.